Please open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. New Testament epistle of Paul's. The letter to the Ephesians. So today we embark on a very exciting journey, a careful walk through Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. We will work through this book very slowly, so get used to that. (laughs) Because this this letter is a treasure, and we want to go slowly through this letter like a treasure hunter walks through a field that's known for its treasures. As a diamond is brilliant and stunning, so too are the truths before us. As a brilliant stone gives a certain pleasure when you gaze upon it, so too the truths awaiting our discovery. But even more so, these treasures, because before us are eternal truths. These are eternal treasures for eternal joy. As it says in verse 3, just to set the stage here of chapter 1, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us already with every spiritual blessing, leaving none out, in the heavenly places in Christ. These are ours. You see, the, the brilliant treasures that the Spirit lays out through Paul in this great epistle of Ephesians. Every treasure mentioned here in the first three chapters in particular belong to every single person who is in Christ. Every single person who's born again, every single person who's been made spiritually alive, every single person who is trusting in the Lord Jesus for eternal salvation. There is no hierarchy of blessing. There's no haves and there's no have-nots. There's no that have more and there's none that have less. These truths, these blessings, these treasures mentioned in the book of Ephesians are for every person who is in Christ. These spiritual blessings that we will look through in the day, weeks, and months ahead are present and permanent for every believer. They are present and they are permanent for every believer equally. The emeralds and diamonds put forth in these first three chapters that we're going to look at in Ephesians over these many months, they describe the believer's position in Christ. So the first three chapters speak about our position in Christ Jesus. And this is followed in chapters 4 through 6 with our walk. So doctrine precedes duty. That's, that's, That's how Paul teaches. He'll lay out truths. And then in light of those truths, you should live a life that springs from those truths. In fact, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, there are no imperatives. There's no imperatives in the first three chapters. It's all description. It's all indicatives. It's all facts. But starting in chapter 4, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 19, there's at least 35 imperatives. Imperatives are commands. Imperatives are are directed to move you in a direction, you see. But the first three chapters, there's no commands. There's 35 at least in 4, 5, and 6. So it's worth noting then how the Apostle teaches. As we will examine this, this letter for ourselves and as we walk through here, we will see, we'll be exposed how the great Apostle teaches. He teaches, as we've said, he begins with grace. God's grace is verses one through, or chapters one through three. These, this grace is the spiritual gifts that He gives to us, the spiritual blessings, if you will, the spiritual realities, the spiritual truths. Those, that's the grace that's mentioned in the first three chapters. It's all by sovereign grace. It's it's all God's free choice. He freely chooses to bless. In this manner. And that's followed by exhortations in chapter 4, verse 1 and following. Exhortations to works, exhortations to deeds, exhortations to actions. The indicatives, as we said, precede the imperatives. The lifestyle that's mentioned in chapter 4 and following is the result of our position in Christ. 
The lifestyle doesn't earn the lofty position, nor does it lose it. The lifestyle does not earn it, nor does it lose it. The position in Christ is a free grace, free gift of grace. It's not earned, it's given. Okay? According to this epistle, our lofty position that he describes in the first three chapters affects every area of our life. Every relationship that we have is affected by our position in Christ. And we learn that from the book of Ephesians. Because he'll begin to show that it affects our life in our relationship in the body of Christ, in the world, how we relate to the world, how we deal with our own sin. It even comes to the home, how a wife is to submit to her husband and how a husband is to, to love as Christ loved the church. And children and parents are mentioned in slaves and masters. And it ends up in chapter 6 on the spiritual battlefield, right? Where we are to be strong in the Lord. All this is, is rooted in our position in Christ, okay? So this is really an amazing book. I, I chose it on purpose for Folsom Bible Church because it sets the tone of, of who the church is, who you are in Christ Jesus. And we can't live right until we understand rightly who we are. You cannot live to the, to the degree um, that God would have you live for His glory until we understand who we are in Christ Jesus, you see. So... To live in a manner worthy can only happen when you understand your position in Christ. So Paul took up his pen to inform Christians of their lofty position in Christ and to motivate them to live a life worthy of that glorious position. That's the letter of Ephesians. He wants the believer, he wants you and I to know these immense spiritual treasures are theirs now, right now, they are, they are yours by grace. Even if you don't feel like it, it's not subjective. It's objective truth rooted in the grace of God. You know these things by the word of God. The importance of understanding scripture is to see that which God has indeed done on your behalf, whether you feel like it or not. And as that informs your mind, then you begin to respond in kind. And you can begin to live in a manner worthy of Christ when you understand what Christ has done for you in the lofty position in Christ Jesus. It's so important then. So he writes us, he writes to this church, to these Christians, and to us as subsequent generations as we read this, to, to help us realize how indescribably rich we are in Christ Jesus. Now, sadly, it seems that the majority of Christians live just the opposite, as though there, there are no spiritual resources, there are no spiritual riches, uh, or very few spiritual resources available to them. Most, most Christians live like that. We live like poor beggars, uncared for and neglected, spiritual paupers barely getting by. That's how most Christians live. And, and, and we live as though we have to, to perform in a certain manner to earn God's favor. It's just the opposite of what the truth is, you see. And therefore, there is no joy, there is no power, there is no happiness, there is no spiritual victories, if you will, because we have the cart before the horse, right? Grace is what motivates the work. Work does not motivate grace, you see. And works and grace are diametrically opposed. If you have any works to it, it's not of grace. So grace is worth defending. Grace is worth proclaiming. Grace is worth dying for, you see, because Christ died for grace. It was from grace that he died. It was from his mercy and heart of love that he died. And for us then, we will defend that, you see. There's, so, we want to understand what Paul's teaching here. This is why he's writing this. He wants Christians to understand who they are in Christ so that they can live in a manner worthy of his name. It's so important. But we, we mostly live like spiritual paupers, as though there's no... Resources, right? Now, what Paul's describing in Ephesians is not based on our physical condition, right? Our, our physical circumstances. It has nothing to do with how much money or lack of money you have in a bank account. That's not what he's talking about, right? 
That's not what he's talking about. He speaks of the spiritual resources available to the believer in Christ to live a life worthy of God. That which most people are ignorant of, Paul will dispel. He will remove the ignorance by this text. Now, along with the glorious doctrine that he will teach and expose and reveal and explain to us in the first three chapters, there's two prayers he sprinkles in here that are absolutely glorious and absolutely wonderful. Um, We're going to just look at a few of this in chapter 1. Look at verse uh, uh, 16. Before we read it, think of this, that Paul not only prays this for the Ephesians, but it's written in Scripture for eternity. You see? So that for every subsequent generation can read what Paul prayed and then pray in like kind for others. So this would be, I know, the will of God for my prayers. Uh, He wants me to pray for you in this manner. And so pick it up in verse 16, just for instance. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Verse 17, notice, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm reading from the New American Standard, the Father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. That's what he's praying for. And then verse 18, he prays for illumination, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Why? So that you will know You will have conviction, not confusion. Three what's that follow. Verse 18, what is the hope of His calling? That's heavenly. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? He wants you to know that without confusion. In verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe? Right. He he prays for us that we would know that. Right? So, in the midst of this glorious doctrine of who we are in Christ, here he's, he inserts a prayer that seeks the power of God to illuminate us to know these things. And in chapter 3, he inserts another prayer. Notice, please, in chapter 3, look at verse 14, 15, and 16. Just For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, 14. From every family in heaven on earth derives its name, verse 16, that He would grant you, according, notice, according to, in harmony with the riches of His glory, that's pretty rich, I'm I'm thinking, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit, where? In the inner man. This is His prayer for the saints. So get this, right? Not only does Paul describe who we are in Christ positionally, but he also prays that we understand that we recognize what is at our disposal is the power of the Almighty to live out the position that we are in Christ. You see? He wants us to be aware of that. Most people don't call on that because they're ignorant of what's at their disposal. So Paul's dispelling our ignorance here. It's absolutely glorious. So then, our journey, as we launch into the book of Ephesians, has a great potential to change our lives. Great potential to change our lives. And I say it that way because if you don't believe what he says, it will do you no good. (laughs) So it has great potential to change your life as it most certainly did the first century believers who received it, and most certainly as it did the Apostle Paul. He was changed by these truths. Because he's writing of that which he knows. He's writing of that of which he knows. So if we go back to chapter 1 of Ephesians, please. This chapter breaks into three parts. Verses 1 and 2, we'll call it a salutation, a greetings. Starting in verse 3 to verse 14, we'll call that a praise for redemption. And that's one long sentence in the original language. Okay? But it's a praise for redemption. 15 to 23, we'll call it a prayer for revelation. Okay? So, the rest of our time here, I want us to look at the first verse. Okay? Because it is, it is amazing. And I don't want to assume anything. But if you look at the first verse of Ephesians... 
It starts like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. I'm going to stop right there. Okay. We want to get a grip on just who is the human author of this. I know we've all heard of Paul, and I know we're probably, some are more familiar with him than others. But as we examine this human author, what I want to see is not so much Paul. I want you to see the Christ that captured him. I want you to see the power of grace to transform a person. Because he is, not only is he unique, but he's also a pattern for us. He is a pattern of grace. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now, look at this here. How is it that Paul became, just by first observation, how is it that the apostle, how is it that Paul came to be an apostle? Do you see it there in verse 1? How was it? By the will of God. By God's purpose. By God's plan, by God's grace, by God's choice, not Paul's. Paul did not choose this office, this position, this privilege, but God apprehended him. It was God's purpose in the life of Paul. Okay, So that's grace. Paul, then, is an apostle of Christ by grace, by God's magnificent grace. Okay, now, as we look at the apostle Paul, who is this guy? Well, I hope you don't mind racing through the book of Acts. And if you do, just write these down. But we can start in Acts 22. And this will be more kind of a Bible study type of thing. And then I'll get after you at the end. Okay. <laughs> but look at Acts 22. And this is Paul's defense before the Jews. He's been arrested. The Apostle Paul here in verse 22, chapter 22, verse 3, notice... He says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, that is Jerusalem, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are all today. So he he tells us here that he is from Tarsus, which is north up in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. But he was brought up in the city of Jerusalem and he was educated by Gamaliel. Gamaliel was with the foremost teacher of Judaism. Back in Acts 5, we see him more precisely. But Gamaliel was the, probably the most popular teacher of Judaism. And so the Apostle Paul was sent by his family down into Jerusalem to learn about the Judaistic religion. And Paul becomes a Pharisee. We learn from Philippians 3, he called himself a, as a, a Pharisee. Okay? In, um, in Acts 26, he's called, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. So it is his family tradition. It was his upbringing. It is staunch. It's in his blood. And we learn about Pharisees from the Gospels and how they treated the Lord Jesus Christ. They were not the most kind of people. They were, they were very passionate. They had a zeal, Right? <laughs> But it was not for the truth, right? They, they had a twisted view. They had apprehended the truth of God and twisted it according to their own ways. And they basically invented a religion, frankly. The Pharisees invented a religion because Jesus had the strongest condemnations for them, right? They, they tithe mints. They tithe cumin. But they did not show love and mercy to sinners, right? Um, they were, they were upset that Jesus Christ would heal somebody on the Sabbath because they, that's doing a work. Right? Um, ridiculous. But very religious, very staunch, very passionate. Paul says here in verse 3 of chapter 22, he says, Under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. You know what it reminds me of? How much zeal does it take to fly an airplane into a tower? A lot of zeal, right? That was faith, misplaced, but zealous. Can, can, don't you agree? How much, how much zeal does it take to put a bomb on you and then go blow yourself up? Because yeah. you believe something good's going to happen to you, right? Misplaced faith, very zealous, right? The Apostle Paul is of that order. He has a passion. He has a zeal, right? His passion, go to Galatians chapter 1, please. 
Galatians chapter 1, we can pick it up in verse 13, please. One thirteen. He writes here, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church, that's his passion, beyond measure and tried to destroy it like a terrorist. Verse 14, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. This is one passionate dude, right? Very passionate. He had a fire in his belly for that which he believed. He was a man of conviction, so much so that he persecuted the church. Okay? Um, if you go to 1 Timothy, please, chapter 1. You learn from his own mouth here. He talks about himself before he was converted. In chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verse 12, for context, 12 and 13, notice what it says. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, verse 12, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though, now notice his testimony, 13, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor, that means a hunter, literally, and a violent aggressor. We get our word sadistic from that. So Paul de- describes himself as a sadistic person who wanted to do harm to those who followed Christ because of a passion for his ancestral religion. Okay? That's how much he believed it. It was in his blood. He, 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 had full, he didn't do anything halfway. A okay? very passionate person. Um, so then... If you go back to Acts, please. Chapter 8. The church is growing in the the first church in Jerusalem after Pentecost in chapter 2. And now things are growing and the gospel is expanding and thousands upon thousands are coming to faith. I mean, in one day, 5,000 people are converted. In one day, 3,000 people converted. And they're being added to the church and it's just exploding in the very city where Christ was crucified. Right? Young Stephen is in chapter 7 is being stoned and he's going to die. But notice when you get to verse 1 of chapter 8, please, of Acts Saul, that's our Paul, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. Saul, verse 1, was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That's Stephen of the previous chapter. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 2, some devout men buried Stephen, made loud lamentation over him. But look at verse 3. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. That's how passionate he was for his traditional beliefs. I wonder if, I wonder if we believe in Christ that way. Hmm. This is a passionate dude right here. Unconverted, but he is a man of conviction. So much so, he was willing to put people to death who he thought were doing harm to his ancestral religion. Okay? Um, now, let's go to chapter 9, please. I should like to read from verse 1 through 9 so we get the flow of this. And again, I bring this to your attention because I want us to be reminded of the power of grace. The same grace that's available to us, the same grace that we've experienced, is the same grace that changed Paul. Right? Verse 1, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is Christians, both men and women, women are added there to show the extent of his passion. Women usually are set aside because, you know, who wants to pick on women, you know, be a man, pick on a man. But it includes women, men and women are being apprehended by this guy. That's how passionate he is. He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3, as he was traveling, he, it happened, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. 
And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Notice the connection of Jesus and his people. To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. Okay? Verse 6, But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Verse 8, Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. Such, a, such an emotional experience for this person. Okay? Now, skipping for sake of time down to verse 15. The Lord says through Ananias, who was sent to minister to Paul, verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Notice again, the grace of Christ, the grace of God, is that he chose this terrorist to be an instrument of his. Okay, He chose him. And obviously it wasn't based on any good works of Paul. It's on the free grace of God. His grace apprehended him. Can we, can we say his grace kidnapped him? His grace knocked him off his horse. His grace picked him up. And his grace picked him up and carried him to a place where three days he let him soak in the brine of what he had been doing. It says in verse 17, So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul... I bet he didn't think he would use those words, right? Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. This is a believer. And he took food and was strengthened. Look at, now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Don't you know they kept an eye on this dude? Right? In verse 20, right? We were, this, this guy's dangerous, man. Right? And now he's sleeping with me, right? Um, immediately, verse 20, he began to do what? To proclaim Jesus. Evidence of his transformation. He's preaching the very person whom he once hated. And notice where he's preaching? In the synagogues. That's where Jews hang out. Religious Jews hang out. And he's there preaching the Jesus whom he hated. And he's saying he is the Son of God. How does Paul know he's the Son of God? The same way Peter knows he's the Son of God. My Father in heaven has taught you this, not flesh and blood. How do you know he's the Son of God? The very same way Paul knows he's the Son of God, by the grace of Christ, by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit, by divine revelation. That's grace. It's grace. Anybody who can claim and proclaim with conviction that Jesus is the Son of God is a recipient of grace. It's only by grace. You can say those words, but to believe it and say it unto your death? is grace. This is amazing. This is amazing grace. Amazing grace. Verse 21. Do you see amazing? All those hearing him continued to be amazed. <laughs> this is amazing grace. They're amazed by God's grace. And we're saying in 21, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Verse 22, finally, But Saul kept increasing in strength, confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving, look at this, by proving that Yeshua is Mashiach, right? That He is the Christos. He is the Messiah. That's good stuff. That's grace. That's all of grace. Now we know that. We know that. Go back to, or to the right to Galatians, please. Chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1. Verse 15. We read 13 and 14 where it talked about his former days, but look at verse 15. The wonderful contrast that's often in Scripture, but, 
But when God, verse 15, Galatians 1, who had set me apart from my mother's womb, called me, how? Through His grace, was pleased, verse 16, to reveal what? Where? In me. In me. In me. Internal revelation. Internal grace of God illumining my mind to who Jesus is. You cannot know Him unless God does that. It's not mere human effort. It's divine grace. It's amazing. And notice what it says in 16. So that, what's the result of this revelation in me? That I might preach Him among the Gentiles. To proclaim Christ. See? But this is grace worked upon this man. Go back to 1 Timothy, please. To the right, to 1 Timothy. Chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1, we can pick it up again in, in verse 13. We read this already, but look at what follows. 13 says, Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 14, And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost, Paul says. Finally, verse 16, yet for this reason, notice, this is so wonderful, I found mercy so that result in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate, put on display, His perfect patience as an example for those who believe in Him for eternal life. So basically, Paul's saying he's a trophy of grace so that all can look to Paul and see how great God is in His patience and mercy and salvation. Right? He's a, he's a trophy of grace. He's an object of grace, an object of mercy. Finally, go to Philippians, please, chapter 3. Philippians 3. Verses 7 and 8 in particular. This is coming off of the previous verses that he's describing his credentials in the flesh. Verse 7 says... In contrast to those earthly, worldly, so-called privileges, he says in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have already counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Stopping right there. What is it that moved Paul to readjust his value system. Do you see it there in 7? What, what, what moved him? Christ. Do you see it in 7? Look again. Whatever things were gained to me, that's, I used to think they were gained and in my plus column, those things I have counted as loss. I threw them overboard. Why? For the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. Verse 8 says, more than that, I count present. Look at, the, look at the change in the verbs. Verse 7 is past. I have counted. Verse 8, I count now all things to be lost. I'm still in that mindset. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. That's incredible. This is what happened to him on the Damascus Road, and it's continued. His, his, his thought process is still, nothing triumphs over Christ. Nothing is more, more satisfying than knowing Jesus Christ. And the idea in verse 8 where it says, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, the knowing that he's talking about, the knowledge that he's mentioning, is this personal, intimate knowledge that comes from knowing somebody face to face. 
It is a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. The risen, living Christ is alive. And Paul experienced him on the Damascus Road. And ever since, he's experienced him. Just as you and I do as believers. We know Christ Jesus intimately. Are you willing to trade anything for knowing him? No, of course not. If you are, you haven't tasted of Him. You cannot taste of Christ and say, hmm, I'm going to take this. No. If you have tasted of Christ, you jettison everything, you see. That's grace. It's, it's the grace of God to be able to taste the glory of Christ. And as your soul is apprehended and conquered by grace, you jettison everything out so that nothing gets in the way, nothing eclipses Jesus Christ. That's the passion that comes from grace. This man was conquered by grace. Right? It's, just, it's my favorite subject. Right? <laughs> and it's sovereign grace. Yes? Now, this is the grace of God that we're looking at so far. What I want to back up and make sure we get a hold of. I'm not getting too enamored with Paul, but I want to back up. Okay? This is the grace of God in the life of a sinner. To powerfully change the inner person. To transform the heart. To transform the soul. From a hater of Christ to a worshiper of Christ. From a persecutor of Christ to a preacher of Christ. You can't explain that in any other way. This man was so taken up with Christ that Christ was supreme in his affections. Now, go back to Acts, please, but this time chapter 20. Chapter 20. And he's talking to the Ephesian elders here. The same church that we're looking at in this letter to the Ephesians. Here in Acts 20 is the farewell address, so-called, to the Ephesian elders. In chapter 20, uh, for sake of time, I want to preach it, uh, uh, pick it up in verse 22, please. Look at what it says here in the next couple of verses. Look at the heart of this man, especially from where he was brought from. Okay? Now behold, says Paul in verse 22, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, before he was arrested, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies presently to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Now stopping right there. Put yourself, use your sanctified imagination and enter into that. You, every town you go to, you get this wonderful information that you're about to be arrested. You're going to be bound and beaten. Yeah? If you go to that place right over there, if you go across the street, Tino, you're going to be bound and beaten. What are you going to do? You're going to go that way, right? You're going to Jackson, right? You're going to go farther. You're going to Bakersfield, right? You're not going to go there. But look what Paul says in verse 24. Ah, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. Oh my goodness. How did he get to that place? Look at what it says in the rest of the verse. So that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of what? Of the grace of God. See, he experienced this grace that he preaches. He's been overcome, conquered, apprehended, transformed by grace. Here's a man who hunted Christ, and now he's willing to die for Christ. Is this, so, is this just unique to him? This attitude? What about all the martyrs who've gone after him? Right? How about even Stephen, whom he so joyfully saw killed? What about us today? What about in the foreign lands? Our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan today are, are, are realizing this very thing. And they're going to glory because they won't deny that they know Christ Jesus. How can you do that? How can you stand there unflinchingly knowing that you're, you're about to be harmed for the sake of Christ? How can you do that? It's the grace of God. That convinces you of the truth of the gospel, of who Jesus Christ is. You see, this is the Apostle Paul. This is why he can preach grace. 
This is why the book of Ephesians is going to transform us because we're going to see not only what it did to him in his life, we're going to, we're going to go deeper down to see it do more in our lives. You see, as we, as we comprehend what Paul's teaching, we then will live in a manner worthy of Christ. That's glorious. What a time to be doing that in the midst of all this COVID nonsense and all this other stuff that's going on, right? The church needs to be solid. The church needs to have a firm grip on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So let us go forward in that. Paul was not afraid to die because he understood the gospel. He believed what God said. I will be raised, so too you shall be raised. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. He believed that. And he was willing to preach that and suffer for that sake. In fact, go to 2 Timothy real quick. 2 Timothy, chapter 1. Please. 2 Timothy, chapter 1. And look at verse, how about just 8 for, for, and 9. But look at what he says here. And now 2 Timothy, he's writing from his... his uh, Second imprisonment, he's about to be put to death. So this is his swan song. So he says here to young Timothy, Therefore, verse 8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me, what does yours say? In suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 9, this God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and what? Grace, which was granted us in Christ from all eternity. You see, He knows what He's talking about. He's experienced this grace. He's willing to suffer for the gospel of grace. He believes what God says in that gospel. Verse 12, He goes on to say, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him, namely my soul, until that day. This is the Apostle Paul. And this is scripture so that I can emulate this. We can call on, on the Spirit of God to emulate this. Do you believe the gospel? You see, have you tasted the grace of God? Have you experienced this Christ? It's for us. It's in the gospel. You see, that's why we preach Him and Him crucified. The suffering then is in response to the suffering of Christ on my behalf. You see, the gospel message of Christ crucified is also the message of Christ glorified. You see? Christ glorified as a result of His resurrection. And to those who believe in Christ, glory is promised. You see? Glory is promised. Go to Romans 8, please, and see a verse that is stunning here. Again, this is our Apostle Paul, chapter 8, two verses here, but look at 17 and 18 of Romans 8. Paul just wrote that the Spirit testifies that they're children, and if that's true, verse 17, if children, then heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's pretty lofty stuff. Amen? Amen? An heir of God? I'm a recipient of all that belongs to Him? I'm a joint heir with Christ? Everything that the Father's bequeathed to the Son, the Son has by right of sonship. You have right by adoption. You've been brought into that in Christ Jesus. So everything that's been promised to Christ by His right is mine when I'm in Christ Jesus. That's what a child of God has as, a, as your inheritance. Think about that. Unbelievable. That's lofty. That's beyond comprehension. That's mine. That's not some charismatic dream thing. That's mine. That's Scripture. Now, look at the second half of 17. If indeed, or since... We suffer with Him. 
Whoops, I, th I thought you just told me I'm an heir of Christ. Where's the suffering business, right? You see how some people could get knocked off. I must not be an heir of God because I'm suffering. No, 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 no. It's because you're an heir of God, you're suffering. In this text, right? Look at this. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. So His experience will be our experience. As He went down, He would took up. As we go down in suffering, it's only going to produce glory. In Christ Jesus, you suffer with Him, you will be glorified with Him. Look at verse 18, please. For I consider that the sufferings, plural, of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Incredible passage, please. Do you see what he's saying? You're a child of God. You will suffer with Him. You will be glorified with Him. But don't worry about that because the sufferings of this life, and he's not minimizing the sufferings. He's not minimizing. What is he doing? He's saying, even the worst of sufferings in this life cannot compare to the glory to be revealed in the future. What does that mean? How great must the glory be when immense suffering here cannot even move the scales? That's what he's saying. Paul believed that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You see, this is our apostle. He's been apprehended by grace. And this, this is what he's preaching. And those who believe, this is what I'm saying, we can follow in his steps. Did he not say to me, imitate me as I imitate Christ? I want to imitate him. I don't want to be like, I don't want to be like Christianity we see today. I don't want the TV Christianity. I want this. I want him. And I want to do it. He's called us to do that here. Amen? Amen. Whether, wherever we are, wherever we serve, he's called us to that. Think about this. Paul's conversion is unique to him. The Damascus Road. Very dramatic. But it's also as common as ours. How's that? It's as supernatural as ours is. Go to Ephesians 2. I want you to see this. So just as your testimony is unique, it's also common. You see? Because look at Ephesians 2. I want you to show how he, how he does this. Verses 3, 4, and 5 in particular. In Ephesians 2, verse 3, he says, Among them we, including himself, to all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, talking before his conversion, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved who? Us. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Do you see? His is unique, but it's also as common as ours. In what sense? In that it is as supernatural as yours. What supernatural power? To make dead alive. Paul was dead and was made alive. It just had a dramatic twist in between there, right? You were dead and were made alive. It may not be as dramatic as Paul's, but it's every bit as supernatural and every bit according to grace. Therefore, we praise Him. That's why Paul can say in the first chapter of Ephesians, to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's awesome. Isn't it Paul who said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? For it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe to the Jew first and to the Gentile. So who better than to write about grace than this Apostle Paul? In fact, he wrote 13 of our New Testament epistles. Have you experienced this grace as we bring this plane to landing, as my wife likes to say, land the plane, preacher? <laughs> Have you experienced this grace? This Christ, can you say with Paul and every other believer, I once was lost, 
but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Then I say this, be stunned again afresh, beloved, by His grace. Praise Him and thank Him with all your heart. And serve Him with passionate joy. Serve Him with passionate joy as a result of His grace. Not to earn His grace. Amen? If you have not experienced this Christ, if you have not experienced this grace, do you sense your need? Do you sense your spiritual danger? You don't know if tomorrow's coming. You don't know if you have another hour. It's been appointed for men to die once and then comes judgment. Now's the age of grace. The moment you quit breathing, it's now judgment if you're not in Christ. I don't want to ever assume and I don't want to ever not mention that truth. No matter where I'm at, I am called to call sinners to repentance. Look to this Christ. Look to the one who hung on that cross for your sins, who was buried and raised on the third day, who is the Lord of glory. He's he's coming to judge heaven and earth. He is the final judge. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But right now, His arms are open wide. And He says, Come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I shall give you rest. Come. If you refuse, think of this. Why will you refuse grace? Why will you die in your sins? Come to Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for how you worked in the Apostle Paul as he's a trophy of grace and he's put on display in the Scripture, but what's on display is your power and your mercy and your grace that's available to us all. We thank you for the grace you have bestowed upon us. We thank you that you have transformed us, Lord. You have delivered us from darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your Son. You have taken us from the kingdom of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of light. You removed us from Satan's kingdom and have made us heirs, join heirs with your Son in your kingdom. And it's all of grace. So now I pray, Father, you would use us to go forth from this place to make much of Christ, to, pro- to promote His fame, that you would receive glory and that people would be filled with joy. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.